0: where my handle is at Turkey Hitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 165, Wild Turkeys, Conservation, and Politics with Becky Humphreys. And I am your host... And the guy who is like a kid at Christmas right now. I'm so excited because the winter solstice has come and gone. And it's all uphill from here. And I love it. At least until the third week in June. Another reason that I'm like a kid at Christmas is because we are 84 days, 8 hours, 21 minutes, and 50 seconds away from... Opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So going back to this winter solstice thing, I think that my farming roots run pretty deep. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was a farmer. He grew vegetables and annuals and sold those at the local farmer's market many, many years ago. And after that, he got into the nursery and landscaping business and pretty much my entire life, while he was still alive, he was in that business. And my dad was also in that business. And I grew up working in that business at my dad's store. And I loved it. But I also realized that it is a tough way to make a living. I saw it every single day growing up and especially saw it in the winters. So, I chose a profession that put me behind a desk every day instead of outside every day. But like I said, I think that my farming roots run deep, and here's why. I really can't stand these short winter daylight hours that we have. I do not like the sun setting at 5.10 p.m. and it being pitch black dark at 5.30. And you guys who live up north who have even shorter periods of daylight each day, And you guys who live in Alaska, who have almost no daylight at all in a day right now, I don't know how you do it. My body tells me that when it gets dark, it's time for sleep. And while I would love to do that, I'm afraid that if I went to bed at 530 in the afternoon, my night owl wife would probably leave me. So I have to try to at least stay up until 10 or 10.30 every night as a good compromise for my lovely bride. Anyway, more daylight hours are ahead for us in the next six months, and I am very excited about it. And I have realized that I've now done this two weeks in a row. I'm off on a tangent. I've gone down a rabbit hole about something completely unrelated to turkey hunting. So, let's get back on track now. I guess I'm going to need to start snorting some Adderall or Ritalin or something. So, here's what I have in store for you guys today. There is a lot going on in the political arena that should be of interest to us sportsmen and women out there listening. There are currently bills in the House and Senate that affect our access to public lands for hunting and fishing and even photography, believe it or not. They affect our opportunities to enjoy shooting sports. And there are bills that affect our access to certain gun accessories and parts and modifications. Some of which have a purpose in hunting and some do not. But as sportsmen and women, we need to be aware of and vocal about our positions on certain legislative proposals That affect our opportunities to enjoy the outdoors and hunting. We cannot sit back and think that we outdoors people got this in the bag because it's pretty much a no-brainer. The reason that we can't sit back and think that is because the antis and the environmentalists are not sitting back thinking that they've got this in the bag. They're acting to let their voices be heard via social media, writing letters and making phone calls to their representatives, and attending town hall meetings and, as we all see on the news, protests because the news loves a good protest. As ridiculous and unfounded as the voices of these environmentalists and anti-hunters can be at times, You know, oftentimes it's not about what is being said. It's about how loudly it is being said and how often it is being said. And I experienced this firsthand several years ago when our local waterworks decided that they were going to lease out some property that they had very near the city of Birmingham. In fact, the property that they have surrounds the lake that the city of Birmingham gets their water from. And I actually had about 1,200 acres of that property leased. I had it under agreement. I had the lease in writing. I had paid for the lease. When word got out to some of the neighbors that the waterworks had leased this land out for hunting, the neighbors went ballistic. And they went to the waterworks, and they raised cane, and they finally got a meeting in front of the waterworks board. I was the only person there at that waterworks board meeting to support the decision that the waterworks had made to lease that land out for hunting. Everyone else there was protesting that decision by the waterworks board to lease that land out. And here's why. And I'm not lying when I say this. One person stood up and said, my property borders some of this property that is leased by the waterworks to a hunting club and now that land was actually leased for bow hunting only. No guns at all. Shotguns, rim fires, or centerfire rifles. No guns. Bow hunting only. So this gentleman stands up and says, my property borders the property that the Birmingham Water Works has leased out to a hunting club now, and I'm just afraid that I'm going to be sitting in my living room one day and an arrow is going to come flying through the window in my living room and stick in the living room wall. And not only that, but I have dogs that I keep in my fence in my backyard. And what's going to happen if somebody shoots one of my dogs with a bow and arrow thinking it's a deer? Now, no regard at all was given to the fact that in the lease that every lessee signed with the Birmingham Waterworks, there was a clause that said, there will be no hunting within a 100 yards of a structure. No regard was given to the objection of, I'm afraid someone's going to mistake one of my dogs for a deer and shoot it. I've seen a lot of dogs in my day. And I'm pretty sure that when a dog comes within bow range of me, I'll know that's a dog and not a deer. And I'm pretty sure that most of you listening to this show are probably in the same boat that I am in. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say none of you would mistake a dog at 40 yards or 50 yards for a deer. But wait, there's more. Another person stood up and said, I'm very concerned about the waterworks leasing this land out to hunters because when these men and women are in the woods and they're hunting, where are they going to use the bathroom? They're going to use the bathroom in the woods. And, well, I'm afraid of their human waste getting into our drinking water and contaminating it. All right, so I promise you, I am not kidding. That man stood up in front of, 150 people and said he's concerned about people using the bathroom in the woods and that human waste getting into the water supply for the city of Birmingham. The unfiltered and untreated water supply reservoir for the city of Birmingham. This is a 1,000 acre impoundment That is anywhere from 10 to 20 feet deep. And this person is really concerned about human waste from hunters contaminating the water supply. Sound logic and reasoning does not matter at meetings like this. At no point did someone on that waterworks board say, Sir, have you given thought to the fact that these 50 people who are going to be hunting this land around this 1,000 acre impoundment are not going to be living there day and night using the bathroom six eight ten times a day in the woods like the deer and the pigs that they are going to remove from the property that are living in the woods and using the bathroom ten, twelve, twenty times a day and contaminating your water supply no one on the board said that so i'm going to say this again when Our voice is the only voice in opposition of what a 150 other voices have to say. It does not matter if any of those other voices being heard that oppose ours have any merit. There is strength in numbers. And despite all the science that suggests that it is wise to lease out that land around Birmingham's water source for hunting to help thin the wildlife populations in those areas, we hunters lost. And I'm convinced we lost because I was the only one at that meeting in favor of the decision that the Waterworks Board made to lease that land out. So like I said, oftentimes in life, it is not about speaking the truth. It is about being loud and being heard. And the antis and the environmentalists are loud and heard. Now, at that meeting that I attended, there was way more politicking going on than there was talk about conservation or science. And fortunately, on the state level and the federal level, we have organizations that are out there that are fighting for our interests and for what we believe in. I wanted to dig in a little deeper on this topic when it relates to the federal level. On today's show, I have Becky Humphreys with the NWTF. In fact, Becky is not just with the NWTF. She's the CEO of the NWTF. And before becoming CEO, Becky was the Vice President of Conservation and the Chief Conservation and Operations Officer of the NWTF. In fact, her entire professional career has revolved around conservation and wildlife management. So, who better to run the NWTF and to lead it through accomplishing its objective to save the habitat, save the hunt. Becky and I are discussing some wild turkeys, conservation, and politics in today's show. So, let's get into the interview and I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am excited to tell you guys that I have on the line with me today again, and it hasn't been that long since I had her on the line, but Becky Humphreys, the CEO with the NWTF, and we're going to... Really, kind of dig in a little bit deeper with Becky today to learn a little bit more about her than we got the first go round because that was just a very brief intro and more of a talk about the board of directors. But today we are going to talk about something that is near and dear to Becky's heart because she is headed up that part at the nwtf for a while and that is conservation and i'm going to drag her into the politics of wild turkeys and conservation as well because she has a lot of experience with that and so becky thank you again for coming on the show and how are you and where are you today
1: well thank you first of all thank you for having me on the show andy and i'm in Sunny South Carolina, Edgefield, South Carolina. I'm actually sitting in my office right now, and it is a delightful day. It has finally cooled down, and we've had some nice, brisk weather, and it's been delightful. It feels like fall hunting season down here.
0: When I hear someone say nice, brisk weather, that sounds to me like maybe they're from Michigan.
1: Well, that's right. So it's down here, people will say, it's darn chilly. It's cold. And I'm thinking it's just getting comfortable. So well, you're right. It's all our perspective. Yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> so before we dig into some of these questions that I have for you, I have a little segment in the show that I like to call the rapid fire Q&A. And basically, I'll run through, if you want to play along, I'll run through and I'll ask you 30 questions. And the goal of the rapid fire segment is to answer those questions as quickly as you can and maybe try to beat the fastest time out there. So if you want to play along, I can get the stopwatch ready and we can jump in and go with these questions. And now the questions are really more along the lines of probably something that you've been asked around the campfire at hunting camp instead of getting into the science of wild turkeys and that kind of stuff. All right. All right, so let me get the stopwatch here. Okay, and I will start the stopwatch as soon as I start the first question. And whenever you're ready, we'll get going.
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: All right. Wild turkey, grilled, baked, or fried?
1: Oh, baked.
0: Wild turkey, on the rocks, neat, with cola, or with water?
1: I like it on the rocks with one teaspoon of water.
0: All right. Number of Grand Slams?
1: Ooh, one.
0: Have you ever killed a bearded hen? No. Have you ever killed a jake? Yes. Would you prefer a two-minute successful hunt on a two-year-old or a four-hour long hunt with a clean miss on a four-year-old?
1: Oh, a clean miss on a four-year-old.
0: Favorite camo pattern? It's all
1: about, pardon?
0: Oh, uh, Go ahead.
1: It's all about okay. anticipation for me.
0: There you go. Good deal. Your favorite camo pattern?
1: Oh, mossy oak. Of course.
0: Wild turkey legs for dinner or for the dog?
1: Oh, they're for soup. They're for dinner.
0: More or less than five strikers in your turkey vest. Less. The state you killed your first wild turkey in. Michigan. The state you killed your last turkey in. Michigan. Sit in a blind for four hours and squeeze the trigger or run and gun for one hour and not shoot.
1: Oh, uh, that'd be a tough one for me. It depends it depends on the day and whether I can. Um, I like doing both, but probably sitting in the blind would be more it for me.
0: All right. Rios or Osceolas? Osceolas. Osceolas or Easterns? Easterns. Easterns or Merriams? Easterns. Fields turkeys or woods turkeys?
1: Wood turkeys.
0: Shotgun scope, rifle sight, holographic sight or beads?
1: Um, I have a shotgun red dot.
0: Rubber boots, leather boots or snake boots?
1: <laughs> Rubber boots, neoprene boots.
0: Favorite place you've ever hunted?
1: Probably a hillside in southern Michigan.
0: The most turkeys... Berry County. Okay. Most turkeys you've ever killed in a season? Two. The least number of turkeys you've ever killed in a season? Zero. <laughs> Out of all the states you've hunted, which state has the most uncooperative turkeys?
1: Oh, lordy. There'd be, there'd be um, I'd have to say, probably Georgia.
0: Okay. If you only knew how to imitate one turkey sound to call turkeys, what would it be?
1: Probably a hen. Yep.
0: All right. I'm going to, I'm going to pass on this next question and take the next one. Your favorite turkey hunting book.
1: Mm. I don't know that I have a favorite turkey hunting book. I mean, most, I'm a biologist. You got to realize most of my books are in turkey biology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Who taught you how to turkey hunt?
1: Well, actually I my husband and I stumbled together through that in the early days as we introduced turkeys into into new parts of Michigan. It was between that and actually going to turkey hunting clinics. So getting go to those clinics, learn how to call from folks like you know, that were callers at the time mm-hmm. and then going out and stumbling through our first few seasons.
0: That's awesome. Think of the toughest turkey you have ever hunted. Did you ever kill him?
1: No. I mean, I, I, in the end of the hunt, he, the turkey I was chasing escaped me in the toughest hunt, and it was it was a calamity of errors like many turkey hunts can be.
0: <laughs> Do you prefer long sharp spurs or long thick beards?
1: Uh, long sharp spurs.
0: The biggest mistake that new turkey hunters make.
1: Um Probably underestimating the wild turkey and how sharp, how observant they are, how great their vision is.
0: All right. Have you ever left a turkey hunting buddy because he or she overslept and was late? Yes. How long does turkey season last in heaven and what is the bag limit?
1: I'm sorry, say that again?
0: How long does turkey season last in heaven and what is the bag limit?
1: Oh, Oh, in heaven. Okay. Well, it's year-round in heaven. And the bag limit is is finite. I would never have an unlimited bag limit. So let's see, we want to be able to have, you don't want to be able to take a turkey every day, because that would wear out how special it is. Uh-huh. But you want to be able to take one at least 100 birds wow. over the course of a year.
0: All right. i, I I'm going to tell you that you have the best time, because in my opinion, you gave the best answer to the last question.
1: Oh, Okay. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I know that he's going to ask you at some point. And when Pete Mueller asks you what your time was in rapid fire, you just tell him I have the best time.
1: All right. I will do that. I tell
0: him you have the record for the best time. So I love your answer to that because I feel the same way that you do. I don't think there is an unlimited bag limit in heaven because it would kind of take the fun out of it. So
1: it would. I like a hundred a, Yeah, we gotta piece ourselves. You know, I'm yeah. thinking one every third, fourth day, that would be pretty awesome. I
0: agree with you. And I would say that that is a about the perfect answer that I could expect from a biologist as well. So if you, well, you. if you want to know when when the recording is over, I'll let you know what your time was.
1: All right, all right. Because as of thank right you.
0: now, you got the best time. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. So I appreciate you doing that. I think those are fun questions to run through. The question that I skipped is tell me who, let's see, let me read it to you. It is the best turkey hunter, you know, and I didn't ask that question because I had someone turn the table on me on the rapid fire Q and a not too long ago. And they asked me that question and it made me a little uncomfortable because yeah. I know a lot of very good turkey hunters and to single one out was extremely difficult so
1: it, it is it is and you know sometimes they're different they're great turkey hunters for different reasons
0: that's right you know what i mean absolutely i mean
1: they can be highly successful great callers know about the birds habits but then there are those people that share all the information so well and they tell you such you know they make it fun because they they're willing to share part of themselves and the history and and great people they've known. And then there are other people that are just they're such great folks in terms of knowing, you know, all about the landscape. They know about the geology of an area. They mm-hmm. you know, so they're it's just so much fun to see the different people And then there's the cultural aspects. I mean, there's so many cool things that we see when we're turkey hunting, you know, that you you stumble upon that people share with you. And that's that's really fun
0: too. Absolutely. Yeah. So you got into this a little bit during the rapid fire Q&A, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into turkey hunting.
1: Well, I've been a, professionally, I've been a wildlife biologist. That's how I started my career in Michigan. And I was involved in turkey reintroductions in Michigan. We wound up we had birds in two parts of the state, populations that started from game stock, a game farm stock that came from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. but those birds never really expanded their range nor did all that well. And so when I was a field biologist early on, we were looking at ways to expand that population and, and actually got involved in working with the National Wild Turkey Federation and trading and getting some birds from Iowa and Missouri and some other states that we introduced. And then from there as a field biologist I was involved in trapping some of those birds once they their population started to come along in Michigan and relocating them to other available habitat. Yeah. With that, both my husband my husband is a wildlife biologist also. Bob's passed away now and but we managed pretty prime real estate for for the wild turkey and we live in an area that has great habitat and so we kind of worked our way through trying to learn how to turkey hunt. We were both duck hunters, we were both upland bird hunters and I mean turkey hunting had all the the great things. You had the opportunity to call the birds in, you mm-hmm. decoy. Neither one of us were experienced in it, but we, we got involved in it and had tried our luck at it a few times and um I think we had two seasons before we were successful in taking that first word each of us. And it was it was really a fun way to learn and get to know people. I mean, the cool thing of it was it was a new sport coming on board. There was tons of interest. We wound up having turkey hunting clinics where we'd bring in literally thousands of people. And at that time, you know, buying calls and such were you just couldn't go down to the local sporting goods store and see your see your selection of camouflage and decoys and calls. So it's about going to those clinics where you would have call makers come and give calling demonstrations and all the rest of it. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It was fun to learn about that. It was fun to, to work alongside hunters that, that were so excited about sport. we were so excited about restoring populations. And really, that's where I made my first friendships with the National Wild Turkey Federation.
0: Yeah, that is a cool story. And to be part of that reintroduction in of turkeys into Michigan had to be something very exciting and, and very interesting from as far as your professional training, but also just as a person to watch these birds being brought in and reintroduced and, you know, watching the population come back. So that had to be a, a lot of fun and very rewarding.
1: Oh, it was. And it, it gave me an opportunity. I mean, when we release birds, I remember when we first saw birds on our own property. And then when we harvest our first birds on our own property and our next door neighbor, my next door neighbor just died this past year. Floyd was 99 years old. Oh, wow. And Floyd, oh, wow. I, I picked him up when we were doing those reintroductions, called him up one day on my way to release birds that we would gotten from out of state and asked if we wanted to go on it. And he picked him up on the way to release. Floyd, I remember... Was out there, opened a box, and he, he talked about how wonderful that was. And then we took Floyd out when he harvested his first turkey. And Floyd, to the, you know, the even this last year that he was alive, when he would tell that story, he'd get tears in his eyes, talking about seeing those birds, those beautiful birds, come out of the box and see them fly across that field and then watching him on his own property, and then going, on, going out in the woods and actually shooting one of those turkeys. And that's the cool thing. when It touches someone so deeply that it's one of those moments in their lifetime that they always tell with tears in their eyes, and it means a great deal to them. What a neat story that is.
0: That is. That is really cool. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit today, as you already know, about conservation, where we've come from, where we're headed the NWTF's role in that and look at some of the, I guess, the politics of all that. So as most everyone knows, and especially those of us listening who are NWTF members know, the focus of the NWTF has shifted. Its goal has shifted. And that is from reintroducing turkeys on a widespread basis to more or less protecting our hunting heritage and giving us access to be sure that we ha- we can always get to these turkeys that have been in- reintroduced in- into these areas across the country. So the NWTF has come out with a new initiative called Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt. Can you tell us what exactly that is and why the NWTF feels that it's important for the future of turkey hunting and to the members of the NWTF?
1: Oh, sure, I'd love to save the habitat, save the hunt. It's really a it's a 10-year initiative. We're at the midway point of it right now, and it was really a, a challenge to ourselves, to our members, to to be able to go out and conserve four million acres of prime turkey habitat to make sure that we're actively managing, and creating that great habitat in the most important places around the country, to create. Million and a half or recruit a million and a half new hunters into the sport of hunting and to open up at least a half million acres to land that hadn't been open to public access for hunting. It's, we're ahead of schedule on, those, on that 10-year goal, but we measure ourselves. One of the fun things about this initiative is that we're keeping track of each of all, every acre that we work on for conservation effort and active management, hunters that are created that we're involved in that creation of that hunter and recruiting or retaining or reactivating that hunter back into the sport, and then acres of access. And um, we feel that the great part of the National Wild Turkey Federation, and why I feel they are spot on, is our mission recognizes that not only is about the conservation of the wild turkey, but the preservation of the hunting heritage. But it takes people on the landscape to have great conservation because they protect it, they fund it, and they make it happen. And so it takes both people and, and turkeys to make turkey conservation to make conservation and the passing on of our hunting heritage live into the future.
0: Very good. When I was writing the questions for this interview, I got to a couple of questions and I said, you know, this is really kind of downplaying what it's taken to get to this point to where we can look at these things, you know, really on a, on a much broader scope. And I don't want to brush by the fact that the, huge contributing factor to the NWTF being so successful in its goal is dependent and has been accomplished on the efforts of its volunteers and employees in the fields and on the streets. But I want to focus the questions in the, the rest of the interview more along the lines of the political side of turkey hunting. And so with that being said, What are some of the most recent legislative victories for the Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative and or for our hunting heritage?
1: Well, there have been several of them. We've been working, I won't say there's a victory on this yet, but we've been working very hard nationally on both forest reform and fire funding. The U.S. Forest Service is a huge partner to the National Wild Turkey Federation. We've had a a shared position, what we call a making tracks position with the U.S. Forest Service that's housed right in with our staff to make sure that we are helping the Forest Service actively manage habitat on the ground.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And for individuals who probably may or may not be aware of it, but there's been as as time has gone on, more and more of the Forest Service budget has gone to fire suppression. Where at one time it it tended to be a fairly small percentage of the budget. What's happened is the majority of their both their staffing levels and their funding has now goes into addressing fire suppression because of these tremendous wildfires we've been having. Right. And while cool, slow-burning fires, prescribed fire, it can be really good on the landscape to get rid of fuel load and as part of the natural fire-driven habitat of many areas, these hot fires that are feeding off of excessive fuel loads and diseased trees that have not been actively managed are just causing devastation. Not only are are we burning up tremendous fiber supply that we could use in this country, but then you wind up burning the organic material right down off the forest floor. And and with that, you get tremendous erosion that winds up causing fish kills, streams, and mm-hmm. water, poor water quality and, and terrible air quality that negatively impacts human populations as well as the other wildlife that's there. So we've been real active on that. We um, have testified in Congress three times to various committees on this. We're hopeful the Resilient Forest Act has is, is passed the House. There aren't the current votes in the Senate. We're working on that right now. I was just in D.C. this past week meeting with both the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Purdue, Secretary of Interior, Secretary Zinke on this very topic. And then meeting with Congressman Westerman in the afternoon, who's from Arkansas. He's a he's a registered forester. He's the only forester in Congress, but he gets us this issue, and he has the Resilient Forest Act that he has sponsored and moved forward through the House. We are very close to getting a resolution, and we hope to get that passed through the Senate. We feel that there are some barriers to active management going on, and quite frankly, some groups are actively suing to stop active forest management in our national forests. And so there's some reforms to make lawsuits a little more difficult and cooperation a little easier. And then some what are called some provisions or or categorical exclusions in the National Environmental Policy Act that make review for reforestation or salvage cut after large die-offs a little easier. So we've been working on those factors, and hopefully we'll push that one through. So that's one. At the national level, also there's a what we call the PR Modernization Act that stands for the Pittman Robertson Modernization Act. That's the Wildlife Restoration Act was passed in 1937 It's the excise tax that falls on sporting arms and ammunition, and and it goes to the various states through a formula, and they apply for it through the Fish and Wildlife Service, and that is the main funding source for wildlife conservation across the United States at the state level. That act does not allow us to go out and do marketing or really move forward to try and promote the sport of hunting. Unlike the complement on the fishing side. Wallop Bro and Dingle Johnson allow for marketing. In fact they take a certain percentage right off the top and that funds the recreational boating fishing partnership to try and do that marketing and coordination. But on the on the hunting side we don't have that. And so there is a bill in Congress right now that would allow us to do some marketing so that we can be more successful in moving forward and making it educational programs and marketing programs to promote hunting part of our operation with the various states, so we're also working on that. At the state level, there's a whole range of opportunities. We've been very active with the Sportsman's Alliance in promoting families of field legislation. Removing the barriers to allow people to get into the sport of hunting by creating mentored hunting opportunities and making it easier for folks to get a license if they go out with a licensed hunter who, who's an adult licensed experienced hunter that hunts right alongside them and not having them have to go through a laborious process to get that license the first time through a hunter safety course that may or may not be timely. It also we we've worked on opportunities to try and let parents decide when their kids are the right age to hunt. Yeah. When I you know my kids were out there you know we had minimum hunting ages that were in the teens and I I just know the difference in my kids was great. I mean my daughter was shooting competitively at age nine. Joel when he was you know fourteen it was still a little dicey in terms of taking him out at times. So it all depends on the age of the of the of the child, and we think parents are probably the best decision makers in determining when their kids are really ready to get into sport of hunting, right. when they're safe in terms of handling a gun, and removing some of those barriers that are, well, they're not one-size-fits-all. Hmm. And, and we know that getting kids younger helps us when they get in their teens, they start to get really, really busy. And kids are busy anyhow with all the organized sports. So we've been really active on that with the various states to try and remove those barriers and and make the entry into the sports much easier.
0: Now, on that forest bill that has been introduced, you mentioned that it will give some relief from lawsuits for control burns and that kind of thing. Is that for public land only or is that for private land as well?
1: Well, right now it's for public land for the National Forest Service land. However, it spills over, to give you an in indication, it spills over and has dramatic impacts on private lands also. At one time we were producing a lot more fiber off of our national forest lands and that's declined because we're spending most of those budgets now on fire suppression. Mm-hmm. And what happens is then we, when that happens, we lose our markets with our small timber mills, sawmills and, and paper plans and all the rest of it. We've lost a lot of that infrastructure around the country. And people might not realize it, but that, that could be devastating to wildlife habitat because going in, you, it's very cost-effective to go in and run a timber sale and have wood taken off and have a thinning cut done and you actually make money off of it as a private landowner. But if the mill closes and you own private forest land, trying to get someone to come in and cut your, your timber to help improve that stand, you might have to pay someone to do it at that point. Right. And that, so it has spillover effects. The same thing is if we find out we have a disease or insect problem on national forest land and we don't go in and treat it because we don't can't get it through the review process, then you have pests that move into private land or vice versa. So it, it very much is a, a combination between private land and public land where they spill over when it comes to our national
0: forums. Yeah. So do you think that there's going to be more and I know I know it depends on what's available locally as far as being able to process this, but do you think there's going to be more timber cutting in, on some of our forest service lands? I think so. Okay. We have
1: seen a, a recent uptick. You know, it, it's it gone back and forth over time, but we've been in a real low cycle where, quite frankly, we're growing a lot more woody fiber on the forest and we're cutting off by a lot. And as a result, we're, we're having these tremendous fuel load build up. We need to cut the forest in areas and, and manage it more actively in order to have good forest management. And, you know, at one time early in my career, there was lots of thought that we are way over-harvesting in the national forest land. So there's all this policy change that re- resulted in much less forest management. And with that, we have a lot of our forests are maturing so that some of our states are seeing when you look at their species and greatest conservation needs, it's young forests that are needed. And we're losing those species in the landscape because we simply are not having the young forests come in because of the lack of active management.
0: Right. Yeah. So I know that getting access to some of these public lands that we have available to us to hunt is very important because having those lands available does us no good if we can't get to it if they're surrounded by private lands and we have to have permission to cross the private land to get on the public land to hunt. And just recently, there was some land in a couple of national parks in Utah that were delisted and no longer a national park. What effect do you think that will have on hunting in those areas?
1: Well, we're hopeful that it'll open up more land for hunting. There's been a lot of controversy on this monument designation under the Antiquities Act in the United States, which was passed back in 1906. And Teddy Roosevelt signed that that law into find the law and made it available, presidents can designate national monuments. It's a way, the, the intent of the law was really designed, giving the president authority to quickly designate areas to protect the antiquities of this country. So it was to designate, you know, when we had places like Chaco Valley and Ch- Chaco Canyon and places where we had pot diggers, people that were going in on national land, and they were digging artifacts up and, and privatizing those, bringing them into collections. Right. And so yeah. there was concern with that, that we need to maintain our heritage and our antiquities and those areas that had real scientific Bases for needing protection, and it gave the president the authority to quickly identify those lands and then designate them as these national monuments. The intent was, and we've had seen this in a number of cases, like Grand Teton, where it was designated, and then some of these lands were put into national parks later, and the boundaries were changed. In recent years, what we've seen is presidents tend to, quite frankly, some presidents haven't done all that much for conservation, but in the waning days of their administration, then they go in and they designate these large areas for national monuments, and that's caused problems. We've had two states that have cried foul on it, and there have been follow-up legislation passed by Congress, one for... One was done for Alaska, another one for Wyoming, saying you can't do any more national monuments in our state unless you get Congress to approve it, because enough is enough. Mm-hmm. In these particular cases in Utah, the state did not support that. They really felt that they the state had not been consulted properly on it. They thought the monuments were way too large, that they were... They were going to hamper active management and even some access in some of those areas. And so in undesignating these as national monuments that president recently did, it doesn't mean they're not in federal protection. The lands that were federally owned are still federally owned. They just went back to the respective organization that had their management responsibilities before rather than the National Park Service. So it might be BLM, it, be, it might be the National Forest Service that had those lands for management. Right. And with that, we hope that they'll be actively managed where appropriate, that the 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 president's executive order did maintain some of those monument designations in what they felt were the most critically designated areas, but we hope it will allow more active management in some of the lands that don't need protection. So it was very controversial, and the real controversy came in, you know, because people one didn't understand that the lands go back to their to the original protection under forest. It's not like we're giving up federal land through undesignating it. But the other real question is, does the president, the current president, have authority to change the designation of prior president? And it's been done. This isn't the first time that's been done, but people are concerned that this is a slippery slope. That our president, we might have a president in the future who would undo all these designations or many more of them, and that's the concern out there.
0: Well, and I can certainly understand that concern, but that's part yep. of the proper vetting of these candidates who are running. You know, we get the well, we get the opportunity to nominate these these candidates, and so you know we need to, as citizens, we need to do our homework and find out where these candidates stand on these issues that are important to us and, and vote accordingly. So, yeah.
1: I agree. And that's That's why we've tried to put out information to help our members really understand the issue because there's a lot of There's a lot of rhetoric out there on this issue right now and we feel our members really need to understand both the authority and what's in question and and in reality what happened. It's a tough issue, but I don't think we can be so overly afraid of the future that we don't periodically review to see if we got it right because some of these designations have happened so quickly and we have been concerned about a few of them that there's been a, a bit overreach. In the Antiquities Act, it calls for the smallest area to be designated to protect those antiquities. And so uh, some of these are pretty darn big.
0: Right, yeah. Well, and I appreciate you clearing that up for all of us a little bit because there was so much misinformation out there. And, you know, the, the good thing about social media is... Well, one of the good things is that we are able to hear other people's opinions, and you're not going to say this, I'm saying it, because if it makes someone mad, then they'd just be mad at me. Some people should not be (laughs) given a microphone to speak because they don't know enough about a topic to speak on it. And so, you know, that I think a lot of that went on, and, you know, it just, I, I just, well, I'll just say it this way. Thanks for clearing that up for us.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. And like I say, I think our members deserve to know what we know about it. They deserve us to dig into it, to really look at the authority, to analyze the situation, and to give our best thought on, on how it impacts our us today and in the future.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned some of the bills that are in front of Congress, whether it's in, in a committee or getting ready to, or actually out on the floor for vote. Is there any information on the NWTF website about some of these bills and what they're proposing?
1: Yeah, one of the things that people can do is is sign up for our action alerts. We send out action alerts when we know something is coming up in Congress. We send out an action alert to our membership so that they get an opportunity to Be aware of it to weigh in on it. And then we also have any of the press releases that we have done on activities with Congress, when we testify, positions on bills. We have that on our website, too. So I encourage people to head to our website, take a look at that, pay attention to action alerts. We try not to overburden people with sending those out all the time. But when when we need your help, we will do it. We'll send out an action alert, and we strongly encourage you to look up who your members of Congress are and, and reach out to them. It's not intimidating, you can call a local office. you can call their national office in d c You can send them an email, and we have the link so that you can look up your legislator and But be aware of that I mean these folks are folks that you should know, and most times, both in Congress, your congressional representation and your state representation. They have coffees and listening sessions right in their district. And, and you know, all too often they have the same people show up at those sessions all the time. And they'd love to hear from their constituents, people that are reasonable, that want to talk and, and give their point of view. And so make the time, if you have a few moments, to go on, look up your member of Congress, your state rep is, and find out where their offices are and get on their websites because they almost always put out notifications of when they're out in their districts and meeting with folks and become aware of that go to them introduce yourself just tell them you know introduce them tell them you're you're a hunter you're an angler that yeah you're interested in this that you're a member of nwtf and and tell them that you're concerned about you know conservation in this country that you're concerned about hunting rights and that you you know that you want to make sure that you're your feelings on those issues are being adequately reflected. And most times those those members of Congress, your local reps, they're going to value your opinion. They'll want to hear what's important to you. And they'll get to know you as an individual so that when you send them an email note, they know you care. And that's important.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else? I mean, obviously we can join the NWTF if we're not already members, but is there anything else other than staying on top of our well, legislators and that kind of thing, to really help? I
1: think to be an informed voter. You know, I, I think as as we are all faced with decisions on making a vote, you know, in this country, democracy is held up as, as being golden, but politics is, is something less than that, that we all, you know, we hear so much negativity about it. But, you know, they go hand in glove. And we live in a society where we're very blessed, where we can decide our leaders and we get the leaders that we choose and so it's up to us to choose wisely and That's more than listening to the campaign ads. It's about really going in and understanding how the individual who's running for office, what's their track record? How have they voted in the past? What are their feelings on the issues that you care about? And making those, asking those questions and reading how their voting record has been or their platform that they're running on so that we get leaders who really reflect our views. So it takes a little bit of work. Takes a little bit of research, but I think it really pays dividends getting people in Congress and people in our state legislatures who value the same things that we do are gonna help us carry on hunting heritage and, and wise natural resource management.
0: Very good. All this talk of politics and conservation and all this other fun stuff has got me wanting to hear a turkey hunting story. (laughs)
1: yeah no kidding isn't that the truth (laughs)
0: Uh, for sure get my mind off of the topic of the politics part of it i do like the conservation part that's always a lot of fun it's very interesting and fascinating so and it's something that's constantly evolving because there are new management techniques and that kind of thing that are always coming into play so the conservation part of it's always fun but let's get back to this to this turkey hunting story so can you share the story of your last successful turkey hunt and one or two things that you did or maybe that happened on that hunt that helped to make it a success
1: well it wouldn't be my last hunt but a couple of years ago i had a successful hunt that was really a lot of fun but i'll share great but there's an individual who i've known for years in the conservation arena he's a it, it, Jim Martin is his name, and he was the fisheries chief in the State of Oregon. He was the governor's salmon advisor. Following that, because salmon is king out on the on the west coast. True. And, Jim had come and and given a talk to my employees at the National Wild Turkey Federation, and he's he's quite a he's, he's just a great individual who has great enthusiasm for conservation. And Jim, what he always wants to do, he doesn't take a speaker's fee. He wants to go out hunting, so he uses his opportunity to get, go around and give great talks on conservation and leadership to to go out and experience the outdoors. And for years, Jim never turkey hunted because the spring Chinook run, spring salmon run, was falls at the same time out there. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to be conflicted. He just didn't want to be conflicted. He wanted to be able to focus on that spring run of salmon. And, well, lo and behold, he's a duck hunter, and he's a, you know he hunts, trains his own labs, and he got sucked into turkey hunting. And he just started a few years before this, and he was hooked. I mean, this is one of those guys... We all know them, that once they get into something, they just get so passionate about it. They live it day in and day out. And Jim had had not taken an osceola before and invited him on a hunt, and we went out and we had hunted for a couple of days and just not been able to pull birds in. They really weren't talking very much. We weren't able to pull them in close. And on I think it was our third day out, the last day, it was starting to get pretty warm. It was probably around midday, and lo and behold, we wound up seeing birds after we had set up that morning and been un- unsuccessful and and go on to a couple different locations. We wound up spying some birds at the uh, real long edge of this field, quite a ways off. So we decided to sneak around, walk through this gully, and see if we could get out to this rock pile where there's a little woodlot where we could conceal ourselves and pull those birds up. And... When we While we were sneaking around there, what we didn't realize was there were some hens up at the other end, and they, they had come out and they were with the hens. And we were thinking, oh, man, there's just no way in heck we're going to pull these birds away from the, the honest goodness hens. Right. But we wound up calling, and those birds, we put out a, a decoy, and those birds turned and started coming up right by us. And, and Jim and I wound up, we couldn't even get set up. We wound up both taking birds one two so we had we did a double both of us each got our birds almost immediately there were shots with those birds moving and it was it was an exciting time and we were high-fiving it all over the place oh, so yeah. and it was just such an exciting conclusion to a, a rather challenging hunt with real quiet birds they happened to be in that page where they just weren't talking much because they were hend up
0: yeah that is that's awesome i love hunts like that yeah Yeah,
1: I do too. It was, you know, and and like I told you before, for me it's about the anticipation. I've actually, I've actually passed on birds on opening day before, where, you know, I didn't want to end my turkey season. You you know, in states where there are only one bird, I didn't want to end my turkey season on the very first day. I get
0: it. Yeah. Yep. I get it completely. Now we're blessed in the we live in you and I live in states that we don't have to worry about that one bird issue
1: that's right so that's right
0: yeah awesome that is very good so before I let you go I want to ask you about that hunt what do you feel like really kind of turned that hunt around and made it work
1: I think you know I think that we got more aggressive those birds were so quiet we couldn't get them to talk they were hinned up and it was about hunting a little more aggressively at that point in time instead of setting up in a place trying to pull them in in the mornings and again later we started actively trying to go out and find those birds. And because we knew they were henned up, then we tried to pull them away from those hens. And so in that particular situation, it was kind of the opposite. You know, I, I think sometimes we get too aggressive with birds, a little too pushy. We call too much and we, we can, you know, scare them away that way. This time, I think we were we were successful because we got a little more aggressive and we needed to.
0: Yeah, that is Good stuff because you know we hear so much from so many people saying, well, to be successful turkey hunting, you've got to be patient, and we do. Yeah, but to be successful in turkey hunting, we have to be aggressive too. So that's right. <laughs> there's that fine it, line in there.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, and I, it, we, it's interesting because you know everybody has a little different style. There are those folks that are most comfortable setting up and pulling the birds down to them. There, there are those that, you know, run and gun, that's their style. And they, it's about they can't sit still, they don't like sitting still, they get bored sitting still. And, you know, as you hunt with different people and learn different styles, you realize that, that each style is successful in different situations. And it's about being flexible enough to realize that and use it.
0: Great advice. And you're spot on, no doubt. Well, Becky, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to let us get to know you a little bit better and to shed some light on what's going on in the political world with conservation and wild turkeys. And, you know, we know that all that goes hand in hand. And typically when there's a push from one conservation organization, whether that's the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or Quail Unlimited or Ducks Unlimited or Quail Forever or whatever else is out there pheasants forever whatever they're pushing that generally what is benefiting one of those species of wildlife is going to benefit the wild turkeys as well and you guys at the nwtf do a great job of working with these other organizations and you realize that there are strength in numbers and so i want to thank you for what you guys do over there thank you for taking time to talk to us and shed some light on all of that for us today and i wish you a very merry Christmas. We're right Thank around the corner you. now from that. And, and
1: I wish it back to you. Well, May you have a very yeah. blessed
0: Christmas. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And maybe I'll get to meet you and shake your hand in Nashville. I'm looking forward to coming out to the convention oh, again this year. I look forward year. to uh, it also. Yeah. I look forward to it also. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Have a great afternoon. You too. Right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. I used to be much more interested, involved, and informed about the current goings-on of our government. And then it happened. About 15 years ago, I got turned off by it. And I came to the conclusion that my opinion didn't matter. Now, I still vote, and I know that my vote matters. But after I cast my vote, my opinion did not matter to the person who was elected. So very quickly, here's how I got turned off on all that. I wrote a letter to my senators and representatives in Alabama regarding some pending legislation that would have affected the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act and the mortgage industry, which you probably know is my 9 to 5 job or my 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. job. About 10 days after taking time out of my busy schedule to write a letter, address an envelope, pay for a stamp, and take the effort to get that stamped envelope in the mail, I received a reply from the Honorable Richard Shelby's office. That reply basically said that Mr. Shelby had received my letter about the energy bill and that he appreciated and valued my opinion. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. I wrote a letter about a proposed change to the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act and received a form letter stating that Richard Shelby had received my letter about the energy bill and that he appreciated and valued my opinion. (laughs) In case you didn't know, because obviously Richard Shelby's office didn't know, those are not the same pieces of legislation The Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act was about finance. The energy bill was about, well, I'm not even going to say it. Now, I know that form letters have to be used by our elected officials because they receive so much mail that they cannot respond individually to each and every letter that they get in the mail. But still, the fact that that canned response was completely unrelated to the topic of my letter just crawled all over me. Whether the intern that opened and read my letter accidentally grabbed the incorrect form letter and mailed that to me, or he or she just didn't understand what the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act was didn't matter to me. It just made me realize that the person my letter was intended for never saw it and never even heard that intern say hey senator shelby here's another person that's against the proposed respa reform so with that being said i feel like becky's statement about attending our elected officials town hall meetings is important if we take the time to go to a town hall meeting get the microphone and we express our views on matters that are important to us in an educated and reasonable manner, then we can't not be heard like I know we are not heard when we write letters and send emails. So after speaking with Becky, I realized that she is right, and that that is the approach that I need to start taking from here. Now, as far as this show is concerned, going forward, I'm going to try to bring more conservation, hunting and fishing, and shooting policy proposals to your attention in this show so that you guys can take the time to research these for yourself and to let your elected officials know your opinions and that you're watching their actions and holding them accountable. So hopefully that will help us all as sportsmen and sportswomen to protect our interests And to get our voices heard by the people who are making those policy changes on our behalf. Okay, so that is all for today. But before I let you go for the week, I have a favor to ask of you. And here it is. Please enjoy and treasure the upcoming holiday with your friends and family. Things change and life happens. Next holiday season is going to be different than this one. And so I think we all need to appreciate what we have. I hope that you guys will enjoy the gifts that God has given us because they are much greater than what is wrapped and underneath the tree. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week and a very Merry Christmas. May God bless all of you guys. I will see you next week. Goodbye.